This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's talk about where we all hope to be one day in the near future. We are joined by Joanne Peterson, and Joanne and her husband are deemed essential caregivers for her mom, and because of that, they were able to receive dose one of a COVID-19 vaccine, and we get an opportunity to talk with Joanne right now. Joanne, let's start with how did it all go? Um, no different than getting a flu shot. You just <laughs> felt a little prick, and then your arm was sore for maybe 24 hours, but other than that, felt just fine. Yeah, sometimes we're told there there can be other little mild symptoms or whatever. You and your husband didn't experience anything like that? No symptoms other than a little soreness in the arm. We were perfectly fine. Tell us what the process was like finding out that you were going to be able to go to the Agriplex and get the dose of vaccine. How did all of that come together? Well, so my husband and I are deemed essential caregivers for my mom who lives in McCormick Home. And um, I do have to give a shout out to McCormick Home who have um, done a fabulous job with all of their um, residents and family members keeping us up to date. Um, We have at least two calls a week with the director, um, Tanya Pohl at McCormick Home, and she kept updating us that we would be um, getting a call or an email telling us when it was our turn to have the vaccine. Um, She put names on the list of the two caregivers uh, for the residents. And then basically on Sunday, she emailed us saying, you're on the list. Here's an email address or um, a website to go on and book your appointment. Um, So I went on right away and I was able to get an appointment the next day for both my husband and I. Um, And we showed up at the Agriplex and the process there was very streamlined, very smooth. There were no issues, no concerns. We checked in. Our name was on a list. So that's what led us into the building. Um, you couldn't just walk in off the street. You obviously had to be on a, on a, an approved list, um, which was supplied from McCormick Home um, to the health unit um, prior to our appointment date. Joanne Peterson joining us as we talk about a first dose of vaccine and what it's like to get it. And Joanne, thanks for giving us a background too on a long-term care home like McCormick Home because we hear so often about the negatives and we were talking about negatives of long-term care yesterday but you have to point out that no it's not all bad you've got homes that are doing a very good job so it's great to get that kind of story as well so after you receive your vaccine do they give you a piece of paper a a printout a take your picture anything like that happen yeah no so the last thing the last step in the process was we uh, got a printout um, from the Ministry of Health, it had our date of our vaccine, which vaccine we got, how much dosage, uh, the lot number. It was very, very detailed. Um, they told us that our next appointment would be on March the 22nd, so five weeks after our first dose. Uh, they wrote a telephone number on the top, but they said that we would get a text um, t- 
telling us exactly the day and time. And within three days, I got a text on my phone saying my appointments is March 22nd and the time was there. So pretty slick. We didn't have anything to do. We're just going to show up on March 22nd for our second dose. And Joanne, do they tell you anything about what you now can and can't do in terms of, let's say you came in contact with someone who had the virus? Does that change for you at all? Um, to be honest, they didn't, they didn't say anything about that. Um, it was not on the information sheet. Um, but my understanding from the information I got from McCormick home is that we still have to be tested, um, when we go to visit our loved ones, um, because until we have more herd immunity in the community, um, we'll still have to have those precautions in place. Well, Joanne, we really appreciate you taking some time to explain how this went because all of us are waiting for the day when we can go through the process ourselves. Please keep safe, and again, thank you for sharing your story. No problem. Thanks very much. That is Joanne Peterson. So nice and smooth. Get that flu shot type jab, and away you go. But that is the process, and then you get the paper at the end, and... Here's hoping that we all fall on that list sometime in the near future. Near is one of those words you can use because it, it doesn't necessarily mean and it's not a day, it's not two days. Near could be September, couldn't it? What do you think? Yeah, August? That's that's near? That's nearer than September 2021 and August 2021 were back in last May, right? I'm going to stick to it. For sure. Still to come on London Live, we're going to be talking about how people are spending their money during this pandemic, especially if you are somewhere between the ages of 50 and 75. A couple of interesting things to note. There's a real divide, and we will talk about that just after 1 o'clock. We'll get you caught up on everything else that is happening. We, in about an hour from now, will take you to a city of London. And Middlesex London Health Unit update. So we'll talk about how the numbers have been coming down single digit yesterday. I think we have, what, 13 new cases in Middlesex London today, but not a, a major jump. They're still trying to figure out what to do in places like Toronto, obviously, and Perry Sound and North Bay, where they remain in lockdown. Because, again, we discussed this last week on the show, if you open up too early you wind up having your modeling numbers come into play going back up in the arc because you haven't given it time to go down far enough where the virus has, has kind of you know, kept from being spread to so many different hosts. And if you open up too soon, you run a real risk of having those numbers jump. So the question today that they're dealing with in Toronto and in North Bay and in Perry Sound is once February 22nd hits, is the government going to change its mind? I don't know that they ever made up their mind to open up, but that was the suggested date that things would be evaluated then. But there's a concern that in Toronto that won't happen. And then what does that do? Does that just take people from Toronto and have them go to Guelph? Probably have them go to well, how far east do you have to go? It's probably easier just to go to Guelph or go to Kitchener or take a trip all the way to here. You never know. So that's something that they're waiting to hear more about in the Toronto region. Going to Mars. It's something that we did a long, long time ago, but 
But today is a very exciting day, especially if you love space and the idea that, who knows, maybe, and I don't know how much of a maybe this is, but it's a maybe, maybe we get to discover whether or not there may be other life forms somewhere out there. How long a shot is that? I don't know. But our next guest can help us to understand what exactly is taking place. Please welcome to London Live, Dr. Sarah Mazrui from Ryerson University. Dr. Mazrui, thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Thanks for having me. For someone who follows this, how exciting is this time right now? Am I taking you away from a computer screen, or I'm hoping you're able to to still talk with us and and watch whatever is unfolding? We've got about 45 minutes, half an hour to 45 minutes before the live stream. So we've still got some time away from the screen. But after that, I'm going to be glued to the screen, waiting in anticipation. Okay, well, let's get some background on what is happening here before we get to what today is all about. Where did this particular, and we need the right word on it, is it a a rover, a, a machine, a robot? How do we call this the right name? It's a rover because it's going to be roving around Mars. Rover. So how long ago did this rover take off from Earth? So it took off from Earth back in July. So travel to Mars from Earth at its fastest takes about six months. And it has now made it pretty close. Whereabouts does it sit? It's very, very close. Um, just in about an hour to an hour and a half, we're going to have it land on Mars. So we're as close as we get. We're getting there. So how much of a nail-biting time is this for the mission crew that has sent this rover on its way? Is, is everything pretty much programmed and it's a matter of waiting? Or are they sitting there saying, oh, there's still a lot that can go wrong here? <laughs> Well, it's, it's pretty hands-off from here on. Um, so behind every mission team, there's, there's um, thousands of people, hundreds of people working on it. They've spent many years, but now it's just basically sitting back and watching and waiting for communication. But a lot of the things are automatic from here on. So what does the rover have to do between now and when it rests on the surface? What sorts of things are, are taking place there? Yeah, so first thing is to reach um, sort of the atmosphere, the orbit of Mars. And then we've got what we call the seven minutes of terror, which is basically going from the upper atmosphere of Mars uh, to landing. And remembering that Mars's atmosphere is about 100 times thinner than the Earth. So it's going to have a giant parachute that's going to open to sort of slow it down. And when I say slow it down, it's still going really, really fast, over 200 kilometers per hour. And as it gets closer to the surface, it's going to have a sky crane that's going to put it down to the surface. Now, what's special about uh, about Perseverance is that it has some sort of an automated navigation system. So it's sort of like landing with its eyes open. Um, so scientists and engineers have picked the general area where they want this rover to land, but Perseverance is going to look down. It's going to try to find the best, smoothest spot to land in. 
It also has a microphone with it this time around. So we should be able to also hear the landing, um, which would be pretty awesome for the first time. So we've never heard a landing before, even with all the technology we have. That's never been a thing. No, we've never had a microphone on board any rovers before. Wow. We're talking with Dr. Sarah Masrui from Ryerson University as we look at today's, keep your fingers crossed, Mars landing, getting through the seven minutes of terror. I love that name. Has, has that been used with every Mars mission? It is. It has been. <laughs> <laughs> the seven minutes of terror. Well, Okay, so let's say that the seven minutes of terror are over and done with. It's like riding a roller coaster that's really, really, really long. Uh, and then it gets down and it rests down. What is this particular rover going to try to do from there? Yeah, so our you know our obsession with Mars started with trying to figure out if Mars had water, has water. Um, and with all the previous missions, we've kind of put different pieces of the puzzle together that Mars did have some water at some point or another. So this one, the Perseverance, is going to land in Jezero Crater, which we think is an ancient lake. And about three and a half billion years ago, there was a river flowing into this lake, leaving sediments and rocks. Um, And what we know from Earth is that wherever there is water, uh, there's also life. So Perseverance is going to look for some special rock. um, And we think that perhaps we might find uh, signs of ancient microbial life. So it won't be life as in, you know, ancient life like dinosaur bones, but it would be in terms of um, fossilized uh, microbial life. And Perseverance is going to find these rocks. It's going to set them aside uh, for a future mission to go to Mars and bring back those rocks to Earth. So this is then part one of what will be a bit of a longer journey. And we've heard that, you know, the idea, maybe we find some form of evidence of microscopic life. How needle in a haystack could that search be? Well, this is our best um, best chance at finding it. So before this mission, all we have are uh, Martian meteorites, so rocks that we find here on Earth from Mars. But we're kind of working backwards. We have to figure out where on Mars they came from. This time around, we found everything that we've learned from previous Mars missions. We think that this wasn't this area was an ancient lake, and we think if we are going to find signs of ancient microbial life, this should be one of the top places. So if we have any chance, it should be in this in this area. So I would say. I'm, I would put all my eggs into this basket of perseverance. If we were going to try and look for life on just one place of ancient life, this would be pretty much it. If this was the 1950s and we believed, like Tom and Jerry did, that the moon was made of green cheese and that there were Martians on Mars, we might be thinking, hey, if you land on Mars, somebody could walk up to you and say hi. What exactly would be a a big eureka moment what what sort of thing can we go looking for that would say yes that's that's it that's what we wanted to find what would it be yeah so um perseverance has a bunch of instruments on it it's like having many scientists and engineering engineers on this rover they're going to look for those evidences and signs of ancient life and once they see it in these special rocks um 
uh, that we've seen similar things here on Earth. So we will compare them to what we know from here on Earth, uh, signs of ancient microbial life. And once we see that, that would be our eureka moment. Unfortunately, it won't be having um, any green men on the moon or, or on any, any margins in terms of what um, a lot of science fiction shows us. But uh, we might find um, some fossilized ancient microbial life. Uh, which will tell us a lot about Mars's past, what it looked like, and give us a better understanding of, you know, um, how our solar system and the world around us really formed in the past. Is there a belief that Mars was a lot different than what we know it as? Absolutely. So what we've learned was that Mars in its past was actually a pretty uh, warm planet. It was a wet planet. It definitely had water at some point. And it looks very different today. So today it's very dry, it's very cold compared to the Earth. So there's been a lot of changes, and understanding that change over time will help us understand a lot about our Earth as well, because it is one of the closest planets to us. And uh, we would have sort of shared a similar history and would have gone through some changes together, probably. Dr. Sarah Mazrui joining us from Ryerson University as we talk about the landing of the Mars rover, which is now about 40 minutes away from the live stream. Is the live stream open to anybody, or do you have to have a Ph.D. to watch it? No, it's open to anybody, so I hope that everybody will join in. I know a lot of local places are having watch parties as well, so a bunch of people joining in together to watch the live stream together. How great is that? Now, one last thing, Sarah, and this kind of goes to why we see Mars the way it is now. It would take forever for us to kind of have Earth turn into Mars. I'm sure none of us would be around, but are there theories as to what happened, why Mars was once a wet planet and now isn't? Um, The beauty of science is that there's still a lot of things that we don't know about. Um, And this would have been one of them. Our solar system has gone through a lot of change. The distance of planets from the sun, for example, uh, changes over time. Uh, Our own Earth has changed as well. And the earlier formations of the solar system looked very different than what they did today. Um, And that's what we're still trying to figure out. And that's why we still have a lot of missions to Mars, even though we've been there previously. We're still trying to answer some of those questions. Well, here's hoping that this mission starts to bring us closer to some of those answers. We'll let you go and get set for the live stream. I'm sure you want to grab a glass of water or I don't know, are chips a good thing to have? Can we do it? Is this an excuse for nachos? Peanuts. Peanuts are the lucky um, lucky snacks for Mars landings. So peanuts any are the peanuts? lucky? Yep. So this is a legit thing? Peanuts are the thing you should be eating? It is. So if you do watch the live stream um, in any previous uh, landing missions as well, you would see in NASA's mission control, they'd be passing around um, the lucky peanuts and everybody would be eating some. But I think today we'll probably see some individualized packages of peanuts due to, you know, COVID and physical distancing. Of course. And consume as many as you can during the seven minutes of terror. Dr. Masrui, <laughs> thank you so much for taking us through this. This has been a lot of fun. Enjoy the live stream. I hope everything goes well. Thank you. That is Dr. Sarah Masrui from Ryerson University. I was kidding. I didn't think there'd be an actual snack. Peanuts. Peanuts is the actual snack for Mars rover landings. So hopefully you have some in the cupboard. 
or in the pantry, or maybe some old ones in a drawer that a mouse has left behind, get ready because you're going to need those peanuts. The good luck snack. This could be a slogan. Call planters. Who else? Who else makes peanuts? Call craft. We need slogans here. Do they realize that they are the official snack of Mars rover landings? I know they don't come up as often as say Cracker Jacks at a baseball game, but there's there's some some real stuff there that they could take advantage of. Peanuts. I was hoping it would be an excuse for not. More Bitcoin and cryptocurrency discussion coming up as right now we get an opportunity to talk with Professor Jordan Kodak, who is an economics professor at King's University College. Professor Kodak, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much. We were just telling the, the long and painful story of a guy named Stefan from San Francisco who has $240 million of Bitcoin on a digital wallet, and he put his password on a piece of paper, and that's long gone, and he's got 10 attempts to try and figure out what that password is, and he's used up eight of them, and I don't think he wants to try the last two. These are wild stories, so we've got to establish where Bitcoin has even come from, because when poor Stefan bought the or got the Bitcoin as payment for a video that he made, it wasn't worth all that much. It was okay to sit on a drive. How did this stuff go from being worth essentially a couple of bucks for a Bitcoin to now as much as 37000 or $37,500 per Bitcoin? What happened here? Well, you know, Mike, you make a good point because over the last couple of years, people have stolen billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. In fact, some North Korean hackers are in the news for potentially trying to steal digital wallets just over the last couple of days. So that's that's a very important story. But for people like Stefan and everybody else, it's a, there's a key thing you have to start with. And, and I say this when it comes to equities as well. A company and its stock are not the same thing. So you have to separate the price of Bitcoin from Bitcoin as an asset and whether it has value. So that's the first thing you want to do. And then the second thing it's remote. You know, you, you brought up why are people buying it? And I think there's two major reasons, at least from the way I can see is number one, there seems to be this collapse in trust, a, a lack of trust in banking. And and with Bitcoin, you don't have to trust anybody. You don't need to trust central banks and clearinghouses and courts and hedge funds and laws. So this lack of trust in society is fueling it. And the second thing to, to bear in mind is you have an environment where people have more money. Some people have more time. And in this environment, it's not about buying companies that have earnings and Wall Street recommendations and all that old school stuff. It's that hot, sexy GameStop, Bitcoin, the stuff that's going up and up and up as you watch your screens all day. And you put that together and you get this exponential rise in the price of Bitcoin. And remember, separate that from whether Bitcoin itself has value in the future. That is what is causing so many problems for people right now. Wild. Okay, well, we all know and we've known for a long, long time, back to the barter system, that the value of something is whatever somebody else perceives it to be. If I own a cow and I want to trade you the cow for some magic beans, as long as you believe that the cow is equal value of the magic beans, we're going to make that trade. And off we go. So how do we kind of set our perception for something like Bitcoin and its value. How sustainable is it? Well, there's two things here. The first one, the one of the biggest problems with Bitcoin and crypto, it's been out for about 10 years, is there's still no real consensus as to what it is. 
Uh, people, some people think it's a currency, but the truth is it's not a unit of account or scalable or store of value. So it's not really a currency. It's kind of trendy to call it digital gold, like it's a commodity, but commodities are resources and building blocks. Even gold has industrial uses, so it's not really a commodity. Some people say it's a startup or it's already a company like Google, and then you have people say, no, no, this is just a Ponzi scheme that is going to implode. So the first thing is defining exactly what Bitcoin is, but if you want to get away from that, say, when is Bitcoin really here to stay and not just some you know, spark in the night? And I think people are making a lot of attention on how Bitcoin is being used and being paid off. And what you want to watch for, at least myself and others have made this argument, is liabilities. What matters is not whether people are taking or paying in Bitcoin. It's whether companies are taking Bitcoin-denominated liabilities, debt, you know, rent, loans. Because if you will take a liability in Bitcoin, that's a sign of something that is here to stay. People take debt in the dollar and with low interest rates to take even on more dollar liability and that's why it's a reserve asset so forget payments forget who's buying bitcoin when companies and individuals are willing to take on debt and liabilities in bitcoin then you'll have a whole different trajectory we're not there yet simply because the price of bitcoin is too volatile what store wants to owe something in Bitcoin when the price can be 50000 or in 2018 it went up to 30000 but it was at 3000 by the end of the year. So until people are willing to find value and take the risk of having their liabilities in Bitcoin, then you have to be a little bit more careful than you would be otherwise. That is a sign to watch for. We're talking with Professor Jordan Kodak, who is an economics professor at King's University College. Okay, then if, if it hasn't really been transferred into something that companies are willing to take for liabilities, maybe that brings us back to the question of Stefan and the problem he might have. Let's say he could even get into accessing that $240 million in Bitcoin. Could you ever even turn that into real dollars? Well, the, con- the convertibility between something like Bitcoin, which has volume but is not nearly as liquid uh, as, as other currencies, you can convert it, but that's not the risk. The real risk, if you want to do this, is the volatility. As, you know, as I mentioned, go back to 18, Bitcoin went from 1,000 to 20,000. And then by the end of the year, it had fallen 90%. So it's not that the transferability, it's the excessive volatility. Because Bitcoin has no intrinsic value, and this is important. It's just moving based on sentiment and momentum. And in that environment, it's a much more speculative and risky market. So if you know that going in, that's fine. But you have to have your eyes wide open. And remember, you know, if you want to talk about not just today, but the next couple of years, and people talk about Bitcoin and Ethereum and the various cryptos, there's bigger competitors to Bitcoin out there. They're already being launched around the world. And these are run by central banks. So the long-term trajectory, you have to actually have a global view on what governments are doing as well because they're already in the game. So, Professor Kodak, then let's switch to cryptocurrency because we'll need to figure out if banks are actually getting in on this game. Where does this belong in the landscape? Would there be a chance that cryptocurrency could get outside being a commodity and all of a sudden become more of a currency? Well, let's forget the theory. Let's talk about what's happening right now. I mean, you may be aware, Mike, I mean, Cambodia launched a digital currency called the Bakong late last year. And just in 2020, China has launched the digital renminbi, which is a central bank digital currency. It's also called the Yuan, but it's issued and regulated 
by the central bank and its legal tender guaranteed already by the Chinese state. And the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, they spoke to 60 central banks around the world, and over 60% of them are currently conducting experiments and proof of concepts for their own digital currency. And I, I'm a little bit biased towards China, to be honest, because it was just to bore your listeners for just a second. The Tang Dynasty back in 600 to 900 was the first one to really create paper money. They called it flying cash because it always blew away. But I, I think, it, you know, I love the synchronicity of China getting into the game. So what you have is the governments around the world being led by China, which has already started, already to have their own digital currency. And that is what people who are involved in crypto and they want to convert it to make it a foreign exchange currency at some point down the road. That's the competition. And that's who they have to face up against. Well, this is a fascinating thing to watch. So as we close out, is it something we have to be ready to deal with or is it simply for people who want to deal with it? Well, look, there, I've, I kind of feel I've seen this echo in history. And, look, and, and one of my favorite markets, I was a bond trader on Wall Street, was uh, it's something called the tips market. It's basically the inflation market and fixed income. It came out in the late 1990s. And at the time, they said the tips market is the best inflation hedge out there. It's going to take gold off it. It was gold. It's going to become gold, et cetera, et cetera. That, of course, never happened. Now, tips has become such an important market that, you know, 10% of issuance in the U.S. is a tips market. It carved out its own niche. It didn't take down gold. It didn't become the ultimate inflation hedge, but it found its own trajectory. So when you think of crypto, it will find its own niche. But when you listen to someone like me, or Mike, even you, or any critic or any advocate, you have to remember that this, these are not the last words in the story. This All we can hope to be is a set of a useful first words because this story has a very, very long way to go. We're only at the beginning. It will find its own niche, but nobody but nobody knows exactly what that's going to be right now. In a way, it makes it fun, uh, unless you're hoping that you can remember a password that will unlock $240 million worth of Bitcoin as it stands right now. Well, we really appreciate the time, <laughs> Professor Kodak. Thank you so much for your insights, and we'll hopefully talk about this again. This is fascinating. Mike, if you speak to Stefan, make sure you tell him hope is not a strategy. <laughs> All right. That's well said. Take care and keep safe. You too. Take care. That's Professor Jordan Kodak, economics professor at King's University College. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.